Murder isn't cute. Murder isn't a meme. It's not something funny to chat about with the girls over a glass of wine just to be edgy. It sure as fuck isn't a lifetime movie. Murder is pure violence of the most extreme form. It's removing a human life from this planet by force. About a year ago, I and a few fellow podcasters set out to describe exactly what this act entails, to fill in the blanks, so to speak, of dialogue or thought, but to keep all of the factual details of the story in place. We would pick the most extreme of the extreme, heinous murders that make your stomach turn. And because of the narrative nature of the show, we wouldn't be limited to the States. The entire thing would be an international tour of real-life horror. We called it Monstro, the Spanish word for monster, which is exactly what the protagonists of these stories are. Many of you weren't ready. We get that. And this show isn't for everyone, that's for sure. But myself, Jack Luna from Dark Topic, and Tyler Bell from Westside Fairy Tales think it's some of the best and most original work we've ever done and may possibly ever do. So today we're announcing the launch of season two. And you're about to hear part one of the very first episode. If you want to hear the rest, including all of the nine stories of season one, and all of the rest of the nine stories of season two, then head on over to Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast player and search for Monstro Podcast. That's M-O-N-S-T-R-U-O. Thanks, and we recommend you finish eating your breakfast or lunch before listening. Enjoy. What you're about to hear is based on actual events. Listener discretion is advised. It's hanging right there in front of him, catching the light like a dirty shower curtain. What little sun hits it from the room beyond stains the thing a brownish yellow color that reminds the detective of the calluses on the soles of his feet. Feet that are itching now as he takes the rest of the thing in. Its own feet dangling empty and slightly wrinkled above the linoleum. The victim's skin peeled from the meat of his body and hung in the doorway from its mouth. The distended lips yanked open in a silent, endless scream.
Jordy looks over the top of his cruiser at the crowd of people gathering on the street outside the house. The crowd has grown steadily since the first units arrived and shows no signs of slowing. Most of the onlookers already seem to have a better idea what's going on inside the residence than he does. They keep asking if Kath finally did him. Well, did she? It's not something he can rightly answer. He arrived just before the detectives a few minutes ago and was charged with sitting outside and managing the crowd. None of the locals seem much concerned about causing a ruckus, though a few of them have snuck up to him and the other officer at the barrier to whisper about how they might want to keep an eye out for the Knight Brothers. Those ones can start trouble, they suggest. Mostly he's been standing with his thumb up his ass and chasing the odd onlooker away from the car hidden around the side of the house. They move on agreeably, wiping sweat off their foreheads and making comments about somebody named Pricey, who Jordy supposes owns the home. An old man steps out of the crowd, having only just wandered up the street. He waves at Jordy, who sighs and turns. That cut finally do him? He asks, and Jordy has to get him to clarify. The man nods his head toward the house. His breath is fetid with the stench of alcohol. Kath? Kath finally killed Pricey? He searches Jordy's face for any sign of acknowledgement, finds something there, and then spits and shakes his head. Ah, fucking shame that. Pricey was an alright sort. Hell of a bloke. Damn fucking shame. Sir, if you've got any information about the crime, you need to share that with the police, Jordy says, feigning some semblance of authority. As much as he can muster, anyway. The old guy waves a hand at him and turns to leave. Oi, Kellett, you sticking around? The old guy asks one of the onlookers. The man says he is, and the old guy slaps him on the back. I'm heading uphill for a drink. You can come by and fill me in later. There's a shot in it for you. Kellett laughs and nods, and the old guy says hello to a few others before disappearing up the street, heading for the town's only other bar, having maybe been kicked out of the downhill one already. Hey, rookie. One of the detectives calls from the front door of the building. Jordy acknowledges the man and jogs up to him. The detective's face is drawn and pale. He's breathing in the outside air like a man just escaped from a gas chamber. Jordy looks past him into the house for just a second. It's dark inside, and there's a terrible smell leaking out the door. In the hot summer air, it's the kind of stench you can feel collecting in your pores. Bring your cuffs, the detective says. Meet with Detective Murdoch in the bedroom back there. The, uh, well, she was still in the house. So there's not going to be a manhunt? Jordy asks. The detective gives him a square look and then loosens the collar of his shirt, pulling his necktie open to let in air, despite the March heat. No, manhunting's already done, you could say, the detective mutters to himself. His eyes wander over the crowd, and then he hisses at Jordy, pointing at the rookie's shoes. Don't fucking move. Jordy freezes and looks down at a lump of old barbecue laying on the grass. He looks back at the detective, question apparent in his eyes, but the detective looks past him and waves to the other officer in the yard. The man jogs over. You get inside and assist Detective Murdoch, he says to Jordy, pushing his shoulder to get him going. He hears the other officer speaking with the detective as he enters the house. There's supposed to be a dog around here somewhere. It comes up trying to eat that right there on the ground. You stop it. Kick it if you have to. But don't touch that meat. And don't let anybody else touch it. Jordy passes beyond where he can hear the detective's voice. The interior of the house smells awful. A deep, coppery scent he knows to be blood. And something else. Things cooking. 
things stewing, the smell of steam and vegetables, and something else, something deep and raw under all the rest. It makes the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. There is blood when he turns on his flashlight, literally buckets of it, flicked onto the walls and poured and scraped over the floor in patterns that beleaguer his brain when he tries to make sense of them. He puts his back to a torn-looking curtain that separates the hall from the kitchen and tries to avoid stepping in anything. He calls to Detective Murdoch, who barks a gruff, Back here, that Jordy follows all the way to the bedroom. There is more blood, and then less, just spatters and specks that seem to cover everything in equal portions. His flashlight falls on a shape by one of the living room's easy chairs. It's a mannequin, he thinks, looking closer at it. It's sitting just in front of the chair, on the floor. There's a soda bottle under its hand. It has no head. Detective Murdoch calls to Geordie again, breaking his attention on the odd thing in the living room. The mannequin. A mannequin. It has to be. Geordie shakes his head and walks into the bedroom, where the blood spatters continue to pepper the walls and ceiling. They are a touch sparser here. He thinks this is where it started. There is a woman sitting on the bed. In the rank chaos of this home, she is a clean and almost radiant thing. Her hair is a mad, coppery fringe around a face slack with exhaustion. She's middle-aged, and though she may have been pretty once, time has taken that bauble and tarnished it beyond repair. There are glasses over her eyes, and her eyes are black. They find Jordy, and he looks away, despite himself. You're going to lock up with Officer Jordan here. Detective Murdoch says to the woman. She stands and turns, offering Jordy her wrists. An old pro. Jordy puts on the cuffs without a struggle and gets a good look at Murdoch's face in the interim. The old detective is looking at the woman with a mix of disgust and undisguised interest, like a shit-covered Rubik's Cube two turns away from being solved. A puzzle that's close to completion, but too disgusting to touch. Murdoch dismisses them and they walk down the hall. The woman... Catherine Knight, the calf locals have been asking after, lets him lead her down the hall. They skirt the bloodstains and she doesn't offer up a lick of resistance until just before they reach the front door. Jordy realizes then that she's fairly large for a woman. Before he can tell her to keep moving, she speaks in a whisper that unnerves the young cop. That's what you fucking get, Pricey. You fucking rapist. You child fucker. Jordy blinks and follows her gaze to the tattered tarp hanging between the kitchen and the living room hallway. Now the light from outside is falling perfectly on it, and he can see what he couldn't earlier. The tarp is made of human skin, peeled perfectly from the meat of what he perceived to be a mannequin in the room beyond. His eyes move up the thing from where the flesh that once covered the toes hang, gently curling, just above the floor. A man's cock and balls dangle limply from the crotch of the pelt, which is faintly translucent and tinged yellow by the scant sunlight. It hangs from its mouth by a hook pounded into the beam over top the door. The empty eye holes are drawn wide and stare in horror at Catherine, who is already pulling the shell-shocked young policeman out the front door of the house, gently chuckling under her breath. The cracked and gaping mouth of the human pelt seems to call out for a drink, something its former owner, a man known to his friends as Pricey, likely had needed badly before his death.
All right, Pricey. I'll tell you about Kath and me. Kellett relents, waving for the bartender, who brings down two fresh beers and a bottle of whiskey he uses to refill the little shot glass by Kellett's elbow. Pricey sits right of Kellett, his tired eyes constantly roaming to and from the door. There are only two bars in town, the uphill one and the downhill one. It's not hard to find a drinking man in Aberdeen. You worried about her coming to get you here, huh? Kellett asks with a chuckle, swirling around the whiskey and then taking it in a shot. His eyes narrow, and he looks tired for a moment, older than he is, though he's no longer a young man. None of them are, that know Kath. He looks at the door himself and then raises a hand for another drink before starting on the beer. There's a lot to tell you about with Kath and me. We go way back, you know, men at the abattoir and all that, back in, oh, 72, 73 or the like. She was just about 17, fresh into work at the butchers like I was, dropped out of school and all that. She wanted to follow after her dad, Ken, but you never met him, I guess. Weird relationship, that. A lot of what I heard is rumor, even though we were together all them years, and all of it bad. She said he did all sorts of things to her, you know, that parents ought never do to children, those sorts of things. Even then, she always wanted her life as an adult to mirror her mom and dad's. Everything was Barbara this, Ken that. When we'd married, she'd expected me to hang the laundry while she did the finances because that was how Barb and Ken did it. The littlest thing was out of place, off plan, and she'd pop off like fireworks. Bang, bang, bang. It was fucking mental. But back then I was a wild card myself. We met out there at the abattoir, like I said, which she wanted as a job because that's what Dad did. She wanted him to piece up the carcasses as a boner, but that's a high-level job in that line of work. So she had a start in decapitations. She, uh, enjoyed the hell out of that. I won't lie, that's probably what brought us together at first. I worked on the killing floor before she got that job, bolting pigs in the head. Got a good kick out of it too. Watching fat fuckers squeal and squirm and shit all over the place. She did too. Fuck, she'd come and watch even when she was on break. Just sit there and eat lunch and watch us do pigs. Anyway, I got fired from that job for growing smoke under the boss's office. Big fucking inconvenience that, but I soldiered on, son, I soldiered on. Me and Kath started going together full time around then. And we made something of a name for ourselves in the community. She was bigger than me by a bit. I'm not ashamed to say she swatted me around something fierce, but of course you know all about that by now. That said, she was also bigger than the other mules around town and we'd get into scuffs in this bar or that party. I'd start them and she'd finish them. Come in hard and fast and swat people right in the back of the head, she would. A lot of fun. Yeah, going around with her. We'd shoot at trains and hunt roos in the bush. I'd get in all sorts of trouble with the law, which she'd commemorate by putting the stories in the paper. 
into this little scrapbook. But it wasn't all perfect, you know. She got that promotion to Boner, and they gave her a set of big fuck-off butcher's knives to go do the job with. Fucking took to those knives more than she did to me. They were always sort of around, you know. She kept them sharp as sin, and even hung the fuckers over the bed. Gave some sort of line about how she might need them if somebody broke in, whatever. She still hang them like that? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I could keep you here all night telling you stories about Kath on your tab, but here's one that'll kind of get you to where I think you're going with all this. One night, we're drunked up and looking for some fun, and we end up in this farmer's paddock with a chainsaw. I kill this steer because, fuck it, why not? And that's the end of that, right? But you should see Kath while I'm doing it. Her eyes are all big. She's got her hands clenched in the fists and pushed against herself. You know, down there, like a kid needing to pee. I think she's into me, because I've seen her like that before on the killing floor. All doe eyes watching the pigs get done. But I'm fucking wrong, because I finish and she pulls a fucking knife out of God knows where and starts skinning the fucking thing. And it's a big fuck off steer, you know. That shit takes a long, long fucking time. So I tell her I'm getting sick of standing there and she just sorts of growls at me about this pelt. How it's a fun time we've been having and she wants to remember it. So she's gonna take that skin and keep it hanging on the wall or some shit. I'm sure you've seen the walls any place she's allowed to decorate. Real horse show shit. And, you know, she tried to kill me a couple times, though it never took. And I'm sure you've talked to some of the other guys, too. You know how it goes with Kath. Right at the end, I woke up with her on top of me in bed one night. She had my arms pinned down in one of those big fucking knives to my throat. Told me how easy it would be to kill me, joking-like. But her eyes were black. Like you'd never seen a person's eyes get. And that was pretty much the end of us. She's sneaky, Pricey. That's what you gotta know. And she never forgets nothing. Dumb as a box of rocks. Mean as shit and can barely read. But she never forgets. And just mind you, she knows where you sleep. That night, Pricey dreams of clanking machinery and the steady rumble of rubber conveyor belts, of the smell of blood and the half-muddled moans of things dying in a slaughterhouse. He is sitting in the stuffed armchair in Catherine's apartment, however, the one he doesn't like to visit. All around him are heads and pelts and obscure, twisted bits of metal he knows are old game traps, collectibles, never used. He tries to stand, but can't. His arms and legs are bound together in chains that crisscross over his shoulders and intertwine through stainless steel ringlets. They click softly as he struggles. The chair is comfortable otherwise. Ahead of him is Catherine's bedroom. He first saw the inside of that place years ago now, 
taking her home from one of the bars in town and sealing himself to her indelibly. The arrangement of the furniture isn't correct, the bed being set just in front of the door so that he's looking directly at it. Normally it would be against the wall, but he can understand now why it's arranged like this. It isn't the bed, but the knives hanging over it that he's meant to see. Catherine's knives. The one she was given more than 20 years ago when she moved up to the position of boner at the abattoir. An assortment of tools she used to strip down carcasses to their most basic parts, pulling the bones from the muscles and readying the meat for the lighter butchery down the line. She kept them above her bed ever since he'd known her. Had kept them sharp and shining so that they looked brand new. Old knives, well-used knives, aren't like new knives. You can tell how old they are up close. The shine isn't from freshness, but from care. The glitter comes from thousands of nicks and scratches along the blade and haft, all polished, smooth, and sharp. He feels somebody put a hand on the back of the chair, and it slides forward gently, just a bit. His restraints allow him just enough movement to see a set of tracks on the floor, like for a rail car in a mine. The hand hesitates for just a second, and then gives him a firm push. The chair rolls. He can hear the steady rumble of the old casters in the wheels. For a second, he thinks he'll roll right into the bedroom, but the chair flips forward 90 degrees and flies down a chute into the guts of some red hell. The sound of the slaughterhouse becomes louder, overbearing. The chair continues along its track, but he does not. Instead, he falls directly at the ground, chains butting into his shoulders and leaving him dangling with his head over a white plastic bucket. The bucket is square on the sides with a big hole in the middle leading into a drain. Pricey screams for someone to help him, but there is nobody. All he can see in this dark space are the dull red lights of industrial exit signs and the hundreds of bodies hanging alongside him. They twist and squirm, leaking into squarish white buckets like the one beneath him. He tries rocking and swinging, but none of it helps. He's trapped, stuck. Nobody's coming. But that's not right, is it? There is somebody on their way to him. He can hear the wump and thump of a double-hinged door flipping back and forth as somebody steps through it. He thinks to call out, but that's not a good idea. He knows. The lights flicker on and Pricey screams when he sees what's been hanging around him in the dark. The bodies, dangling from hooks, all of them in different stages of butchery. Some are little more than skeletons. Some have been fully disemboweled and left with gaping cavities where their organs once were. But all of them have one thing in common. They are all wearing Pricey's face. She's approaching, a woman wearing black lingerie and a butcher's apron. It's Catherine, of course, her hair up in a bun and tucked underneath a loose blue hairnet. A black bag, like a doctor's bag, dangles from her lips. She stands in front of Pricey, hand on a hip, shaking her head. Think you're gonna leave, don't you? She asks, kneeling down and plucking at a strap on the side of the bag. It unfurls into a long black leather sheet. Her knives are unveiled in this display, all of them kept in place by little pockets sewn into the fabric. His heart is racing. She picks one, a simple silvery thing, no longer than Pricey's hand, and twirls it between her fingers like a drummer. Pelts, those are nice to keep on hand if you want to remember, she says running her hand down Pricey's chest. To his embarrassment, he realizes he's naked. But what you eat of a thing, that stays with you. Stays with you forever. She holds the knife against his throat 
and he begins to shiver. He can't help himself. She laughs. Don't worry, Pricey, she says, setting the knife down behind her. I wouldn't stick you while you're squirming around like that. It's not humane. She turns and picks up a mallet the size of her fist. The impact edge of it is slightly rounded. He tries to beg, but she puts a finger to her lips and shakes her head. No, no, this is how it is, Pricey, she says. Now don't move. I'll have to hit you twice if you wiggle out of the way. She brings the mallet back and swings it at his temple. Pricey wakes in a cold sweat, sitting straight up in bed. He slaps his body, checking for chains or cuts or something. It's shortly after midnight, and though he doesn't know it yet, it's the eve of his death. He wipes the sweat from his forehead and takes a deep breath. Then he freezes. There's a shape in the doorway, or so he thinks. It is vaguely feminine, and there is something short and shining in its hand. Cat? he asks. The shadow doesn't respond. He hasn't completely broken up with Catherine yet, but he also didn't let her sleep over tonight. Pricey turns and flips on the bedside light, which fills the hallway by the bedroom in an instant. There is nothing there. No shadows. No Catherine. No knife. Pricey walks through the house, shaking off the feeling of being watched, and washes his face in the bathroom. He tries to think of something to do next, tries to imagine a game plan that makes any sort of sense, and fails. In time, he makes the last tour of the house, checking the locks and windows, and then goes back to bed. His dreams are quiet, dark, and peaceful. But there is a shadow on the lawn outside his house, one that will not scatter when you pour light on it. A shadow with something short and shiny in its hand. Monstro is an Incongruity production. If you've enjoyed this experience, please subscribe and leave a positive review. Please support our sponsors. You can find out more by searching for Monstro Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit us at monstropodcast.com. The show was written and hosted by Jack Luna, Tyler Bell, and Mike Boudet. Sound design by Jonathan McMichael and Robert Ravelli. Original score by Leon Rogers, art by Jake Perez, executive producer, Mike Boudet.